0: All right, if we have not met before, the ushers are going to come by. my name is Benjer, and um, this weekend, actually, uh, Pastor Josh, our lead pastor, uh, he and his wife Desiree are traveling. Desiree's grandmother passed away this week, and they're um, with her family at the funeral. Traveling, thankfully, um, I uh, was slated to already preach next week, so I was already prepared with something because I was going to finish up the series that we're in. We've been walking through um, the uh, the the book of First Samuel, and really the life of Saul, and then David as, as he becomes anointed and he's going to be the next king of Israel. And So we just kind of swapped weeks, um, if that's okay, if we go out of order. So this week we're going to hear about the death of Saul. And then miraculously, next week, Saul's going to rise again from the dead. And uh, we're going to hear what what Joshua's going to preach on this week, next week. Is that okay with you guys? Oh, man, you're gracious. I love it. I love it. Um, You know, as a uh, a pastor, because of my vocation, um, I've I've been a part of a lot of funerals. Um, I've I've sat with many families as they uh, sat in waiting rooms in the hospital, maybe their loved one is in an emergency room, uh, maybe going through a surgery and the outcome is, is unknown, and there's just something about those moments when you've walked through them. Nobody ever wants to, nobody, um, nobody ever wants to, to face those moments, but there's something about that, and I've seen this in so many people's lives that just, those moments cut away what, what's really unimportant and helps us focus in crystal clear on what is important in life, Right? Uh, Nine years ago, uh, every November I remember this, um, nine years ago, our youngest daughter, Samantha, who was born at the end of October, um, she spent the month of November in uh, the hospital. Um, she was born, we brought her home, seemingly a happy, healthy baby, kid, and um, about a week later, she developed some breathing problems, and so we just took her to the, the doctor, kind of the care, and they, they said, well, we'll, we'll check out um, her lungs, and took an x-ray, and then three minutes later, they put her in an ambulance and sent her down to Primary Children's where she spent the next month of her life, and she was diagnosed eventually with a rare and dangerous condition. And over the the number of weeks, um, she got worse and worse, and things were not going well at all, and then she ended up, um, actually, I I looked it up, we kept a blog, and uh, on November 18th of 2009, she went into the pediatric ICU unit because um, she got worse and worse, and her life was in grave danger. And around that time, one of her doctors sat down and uh, chatted with us. He was actually a surgeon, and, and they had um, kind of he'd been going through a series of treatments, and, and, he, and he had that conversation that no parent ever wants to have with a doctor. Basically, man, we've done, we've done everything we can for your daughter. And there's an experimental surgery, but we don't think we can even do that because we don't think she would live through the surgery. Like, if things are not looking good, you should be prepared not to bring your daughter home. Well, over the next couple of days, um, she began to get better and, and, and the fluids began to, to, to leave her lungs, um, even without really doing anything extra. And um, it kind of befuddled the doctors, actually, but we know what happened. She was miraculously healed. And, and today, if you see Samantha, she's a spunky, joyful little redhead girl in fourth grade. And, and you'd never know um, anything was different about her than anybody else. And she's a normal kid. She gets into trouble. In fact, yesterday, um, a group of us here at Flourishing Grace, we came and we cleaned uh, up the parking lot. There was a ton of leaves everywhere, and some of you were part of that. And and it was just a great time. And we had some donuts, and she found, like like she's just so great, at the messiest possible donut. Like it was a a stuffed, you know, kind of a filled donut. and had raspberry jam. I don't know how they fit so much jam in it. And and we kind of joked about it. And this morning, when I got here, I'm walking down the hall, And then there's these little red splotches on the on the floor. And then I go to the the drinking fountain, and there's these red Like, what happened, right? This is somehow she managed to get it everywhere and downstairs in the church, right? I remember parents have these problems. You're like walking around your house. You're like, I don't even know how you got food there. You're not even that tall or whatever it might be. It can be frustrating to be a parent. And believe me, one of my shortfalls is is I'm quick to be impatient and I'm quick to get annoyed about this stuff. But there's something about going back to nine years ago and remembering that there was a day we weren't really sure Samantha was going to be able to come home again. It doesn't mean we let her get away with everything, but it kind of lets me say, Benger, just just chill. She's a kid, and it cuts away what's unimportant, and it helps me focus in on what's important. Today, we're going to have one of those moments. We're going to walk through the death of Saul. We're going to go to a funeral, so to speak. And my hope is this, is that by walking through this, that we would kind of clear away the chaff, that we would clear away what's important, and that we would, um, through the help of of the Holy Spirit, by walking through God's Word, we would see crystal clear what is important. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 31, if you want to flip there. If you didn't bring your Bible, you forgot yours, there's a blue Bible underneath your seats. We're going to be on page 280 in that Bible. Um, If you forgot your Bible, uh, maybe you don't have one at home, um, we would love for you to take that. If if you need a Bible, grab it, put your name in it. We want those to walk out the door. We love it when there's some missing because it means somebody who needs a Bible got one, so it's, it's our gift to you. We'll be on page 280. And as we jump in, and maybe it's your first time here, or maybe you've missed a good chunk of the fall. As we walked through this whole book of 1 Samuel, and now we get to the end, um, basically we've seen the beginning of of the kingship, of of the reign of kings in Israel. Because when Israel began as a nation, when they settled um, Canaan, what's known in Scripture as the Promised Land, when they settled, they didn't have a king. Um, God was actually supposed to be their king. And and when there would be issues that arose, uh, whether internally or threats from the outside, God would raise up what's known as a judge, not how we think of a judge with a gavel, but but kind of a combination of a spiritual, political, and military leader. Um, God would provide the leadership necessary. But ultimately, God was the king of Israel. Until one day, the people of Israel looked around and said, man, all these other nations seem to have a king that lead them into battle. We want a king like the nations around us. And God, through Samuel, who was the last great judge, the prophet Samuel, um, through him, God said, listen, you don't want a king like that because you're going to be mistreated. You're going to be oppressed. And they said, no, 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 no. We want a king like those around us. And God told Samuel, listen, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as being king over them. So God gave them a king. And the first king of Israel, Saul, was was the kind of king that they expected. He was the kind of king that they wanted, or at least he looked like it. He was literally head and shoulders above the rest. He was tall. He looked like a great warrior. The problem was he feared what people could do to him and what people thought of him more than he feared God. And so time and time again, we've seen Saul, and especially as contrasted with David, who would, who's eventually, at the beginning of 2 Samuel, going to be the next king. It says, interesting, I mean, you should read your Bible, it's crazy stuff. God says, okay, David, you're going to be the next king, but you're going to have to wait over 20 years until you're actually king of all this nation of Israel. And so there's this tension between Saul and David, and, and we've seen that over the last number of weeks until finally we get to today, and we see the death of Saul. And what we're going to see as we read through this is in the death of Saul, we see echoes of how he lived his life. And so if you are able, if you'd please stand out of reverence for the word of God, we're going to read the first seven verses of chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came. And lived in them. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. We come to the end, we come to the funeral of Saul, we come to the end of his life. And in the way that he died, and on his last day, we see echoes of how he lived his life, so that the way that he died is very fitting for how he lived his life. Now, I want to be very careful about how I word that. Right? Because some of us grew up in a tradition, or maybe it's kind of the idea of God that we've picked up, that, that we've got this kind of obedience meter in our lives, and when the obedience meter is really high, you know, if we're doing really well and we we're following God, then the suffering meter is going to be really low. But if the obedience meter goes down, if we're not doing so well, then the suffering meter is going to be going up. That is not what we're getting at here. In fact, when you walk through especially the Gospels and the way Jesus taught, you'll see that's not the case as well. Some of his closest followers, yeah, during his life, sometimes they got things mixed up, but eventually after he died and rose again from the dead, they would go to their graves, to their death, proclaiming Jesus rather, rather than being able to save their lives. That's, that's how faithful they were. And Jesus told them in this World, you will have trouble. So it's not what we're getting at. What we're getting at is the way the soul died is a fitting end, that, that the road that he walked naturally ended on this last day of his life. Here's what we mean by that. In verse 1, it starts out now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gaba. The way that the beginning of this verse is worded, like it doesn't necessarily come through in, in an English translation. But the way that it's worded, it's supposed to clue us in to the fact that um, it's supposed to clue us into the fact that uh, what was happening at the same time was going on at chapter thirty. So the way that the narrator begins this chapter is say, hey, what's happening in 31 is happening in about the same time as, as chapter 30. Now, what was happening in chapter 30? David had been with the Philistines. Right, he had been kicked out by Saul, and and, and he had tried to kind of make his own way. And so he had kind of, uh, believe it or not, been uh, been allies with the Philistines who had defeated earlier on. And as they began to prepare for battle with Israel, they, they got a little bit nervous because David used to work for Saul, and David at one point in time had actually defeated the Philistines. So they said, we don't feel good about David and his men being here. So they send them on their way. And David, when they got back to the where they were staying, the city where they had been had been attacked, and their wives and their children and all their Stuff had been taken captive, and in chapter thirty, we see David um, through difficulty, through through uh, kind of complaining from from his men, from his army. We see him be courageous. We see him exhibit incredible leadership and be generous. And, and in other words, all the things that Saul, as the king of Israel, was supposed to be. In addition to that, this is supposed to clue us into the fact that David was over here. David used to be one of Saul's greatest warriors, but David was gone because of Saul's raging jealousy. It was Saul's fault that David was gone. And here he is fighting the Philistines again, but without David. Second kind of echo that we have in Saul's death that that, that reminds us of his life is in verse 2. It says, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. Now, it's one thing, it's easy, and it's tempting to say, well, Saul wasn't a great king, and so Saul died. But again, that's not necessarily always the way the world worked. In fact, when you see this sentence about that his sons died, especially Jonathan, Jonathan was a good man. Jonathan defended David. said, Saul, what my dad is doing isn't right. and I don't have a lot of choice in this matter, and I'm still going to defend my nation of Israel, but I'm going to also protect David. Even to the point where Jonathan, who was the rightful heir of the throne, he was supposed to be king after his father Saul, he recognized that God had chosen David to be the next king, and he submitted to that. He gave David his royal armor. We saw that a few weeks ago. He said, I know what God's doing here, and I'm going to humbly submit to David. Jonathan was a good man. And like happened so many times, you know, Saul, what he did is he lived his life apart from God. And like we see so many times that when we do that and when we, when we, when we live our lives in certain ways, it's not just our lives that, that kind of pay the price. Those around us become collateral damage, right? Those around us become collateral damage. And that happened. This, this, these were good men who died because of Saul and how he lived his life. Last kind of echo, um, to me, is the most ironic. Uh, In in verse 4, Saul had been injured. He'd been struck by an arrow. and, And Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Saul knew that he was as good as dead. And he says that he's worried about these uncircumcised coming and thrusting him through and mistreating him. Now, here's why I find this really ironic. You see, Saul, his whole life, he had tried to live his life apart from God. And what I mean by that, I don't mean he'd made some mistakes, he kind of slipped up, he'd kind of turned this way. That's not what I'm talking about. He intentionally tried to live his life apart from God, do a workaround. Right? He played the parts. He played the part. He looked the part. But really, every step of the way, he saw what God wanted and said, no, God, this is mine. This is mine. There was a time when when he was supposed to to go into battle and lead his troops in the battle, and we saw this a few weeks ago. And Samuel, who was alive at the time, the prophet Samuel, was going to come and offer the sacrifice. This was part of the custom before a battle. And Saul grew impatient. He grew worried day after day as Samuel didn't show up. And so finally he took matters into his own hand and he did what he was never supposed to do. And he offered the sacrifice himself. And when Samuel called him on it, he blamed Samuel. He said, well, it was your fault. You didn't come on time. Every time he did what he wasn't supposed to do and dishonored God, he blamed somebody else. And then there was a time when when he went into battle and things went well. And God said, listen, all of the spoils are going to be a sacrifice to me. To honor me, destroy all of the spoils of war. But that livestock looked really good. And so, so he kept some stuff for himself. And when when he was called on, and he said, Well, well, I was going to worship God with this. You don't understand. I I know what God told me to do, but I thought, I I know better. I know better. I'm going to do this instead. And then a few chapters before this, in in, in one of the craziest stories in the Old Testament, again, you should read your Bible more, in in chapter 28, Saul is worried about this upcoming battle with the Philistines that eventually takes his life because he's been trying to to listen to God and he's trying to hear from God and, and God won't answer, primarily because Saul wants a blessing from God. He wants God to do something for him, but he doesn't actually want to submit to God. And so hearing no answer, he says, well, Saul, well, Samuel is dead, and, and Samuel always gave me an answer, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find somebody that can raise Samuel's spirit so I can talk to him. Again, it's a crazy story. You should read your Bible more. And the problem with this was it was against God's law because it was a work around God. It sought God's power and blessing apart from submitting to God. That's why it was against God's law. And Saul even agreed at some point in time because he had made it illegal in Israel. So he goes and he he finds one of these and he dresses himself up and disguises himself. So nobody would know that that he's King Saul who made this illegal. I mean, this is how good the psychic was. King Saul, you know, shows up. He has no idea this is the person who's made this illegal. But according to God's wisdom, because, I I don't know why God decided to do this, he decides to make it work. and, And Saul is able to communicate with Samuel. And Samuel says, what are you doing? In fact, he predicts Saul and his son's death. Time and time again, Saul tries to do a work around God. Tries to live his life apart from God. He says, God, this is mine. You don't understand. Or he seeks the things of God. He seeks what God can do for him, but he never wants to submit to God and follow him. Saul lived his life apart from God. Today we read of his death. I'm glad we're not Saul, Right? Friends, apart from God, we are all Saul. Every one of us are little Sauls running around. Apart from God, we are Sauls. And the end of living a life apart from God is death. Not just just a physical death, but a spiritual death. When we witness a funeral, when we come to a point like this, what is unimportant should fall away. And what is most important should become crystal clear. A little over a thousand years after this was recorded, a little over a thousand years after the death of Saul, a guy named Paul, who ironically, Paul was his Roman name, Saul was his Hebrew name. And he was an incredible figure. He, he was against um, this whole idea of a Jesus movement after Jesus died and rose again from the dead. He didn't think that Jesus could really be the Messiah. So Paul took it upon himself to put into prison and have executed many of the followers of Jesus trying to squash this movement, until one day he sees Jesus face to face. Jesus appears to him, and he does a 180, and he goes from being one of the biggest opponents of this fledgling movement of Christianity, being one of the biggest proponents. And he goes around the known world planting churches. And one of the places he'd always wanted to visit was Rome, uh, but he'd never been able to get there at this point that he writes the letter, but he knew some people in Rome. He had a relationship with the followers of Jesus at the local church in Rome. And he spends the first couple of chapters, because in Rome, in the church in Rome, was a mixture of of people who were Jewish and had decided to follow Jesus, and of people who had grown up in kind of the Roman, uh, you know, Greek system of gods and decided to follow Jesus. And so he's trying to figure out, like, how do I explain this to you, to, to kind of both camps? And so he spends the first couple of chapters talking about how, man, we are just hopeless. We are all, in other words, Saul's. Apart from God, we are hopeless. We are broken, and then in chapter 3, verse 9, he says this. It's going to be up on the screen for you. You can flip there if you want to, but if you don't want to, it'll be up there on the screen. He begins to address those who were raised Jewish. Those who were raised with the law, with the idea that if you obey God enough, then God, you're okay with God and God's okay with you. He says, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks both religious, non-religious, those who spend time in church, those who have never heard of God, we are all in the same boat. We are all under sin as it is written. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And It gets worse. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In light of what we read today, in other words, we are all Saul's. We are all living our life apart from God. And then we might ask the question, so God, what do we do? Like, is this, just, is this just the message? Are we hopeless? What do we do? Is there something I can do? Can I add to the list? Can I go to church enough? Can I, can I read my Bible enough? Can I give enough? What can I do? Like, like, How do I solve this problem? And in verse 20, Paul says, there's no way for you to solve this problem on your own. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be made right with God in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I mean, people, this is... This is depressing. Sometimes when we go to a funeral, what is, what is unimportant falls away, and what is most important becomes crystal clear. But then Paul has some good news. As we say often of Flourishing Grace, if we, want, if we want to know how good this good news is, then we have to have an idea of how bad the bad news is. And so Paul then gives the good news. In fact, one commentator calls this the continental divide of the Bible. He says this, But now, despite what happened before, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been made clear, has shown itself apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, has always pointed to Jesus, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Crazy word, we'll get back to that in a minute. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The big idea of this passage is this, Paul says, But now... You see, the people he was talking to, the, the the group of people he was writing to, whether they were raised in the Roman, Greco-Roman type system of sacrifices where you ticked off a of God, maybe there was no rain, maybe there were no crops, maybe there was an earthquake, you ticked them off enough, you just had to find the solution. You had to bring your sacrifice. You had to truck your sacrifice to the altar and offer a sacrifice. And you had to offer the right one. He's also talking to people who were raised Jewish, who, who were raised in the Israelite tradition, where man, when, you, when you sinned against God, you brought an offering. And you always had to be bringing offerings in order to make things right and he says none of that works but Jesus is our propitiation it's a dense word but the the thing we need to know about it is that this is a covering over of our sins showing us mercy by the blood of Jesus, by taking away God's wrath against sin. And I know that sounds like old-fashioned language, and I was like, well, wow, is God really angry against sin? But think about it, especially if you're a parent. But if there's any young one, young, young, young person that you love, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you got friends, maybe you got a niece or a nephew, and if somebody hurts a child that you love, doesn't your blood boil at least for a moment? about how God feels about our rebellion. And Jesus took that upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. Now, here's, here's the crazy thing. And here's what I want you to take away from this passage. It's a dense passage, but here's the one thing I want you to take away. Paul was writing to people who over and over and over again had lived their lives in a system, whether they were Greco-Roman or whether they were Jewish, and they knew these systems. They had to truck, they had to bring, they had to carry their sacrifices to the altar. And they would have to, they'd do it again and they would mess up and there'd be no rain and there'd be an economic crisis and there'd be an earthquake. and Well, maybe the gods are angry or maybe God, the one true God is angry with me and I've sinned against him so I need to bring another offering. I've got to do it right. This week, I heard one of the most heartbreaking ideas of how God just feels about sin and deals with it. Uh, it was on a radio show, and, and the woman was talking about how she had been raised to think about God and her own sin. Um, that when you decide to follow Jesus, um, that, that there was this kind of whiteboard, right? And when you decide to follow Jesus, it was, it was your life, and it was made clear that Jesus washed that. But when you sinned, when you messed up, when you rebelled, there'd be little, little black marks made on that. And in order for those black marks to go away, you would have to do the right thing. And you would have to repent in the right way and, and, and offer the right kind of uh, sacrifice through your life and erase those. And then when it got black again, when you would mark on it and mess up, you'd have to erase those again. And it was, it was all up to you. This is the system that Paul's audience had grown up with. It's what they felt about God. But Paul says that is not the way that God works the beginning of, of verse 25, he's talking about how Jesus is, is where we get redemption. And he describes Jesus in, in this way. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice, as a covering for our sins. Whom God put forward. Many of us have spent our lives think man, God is angry with me. I've got to do something. I've got to complete the items on this list. I've got to do the right kind of thing in my life. Paul's audience had spent their lives bringing these animals to the altar, bringing the right kind of sacrifices to the altar, denying themselves, thinking, okay, if I do the right things, then God will be pleased with me again. And Paul says, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. Jesus is the one whom God put forward. Who put it forward? Come on now, it's in yellow. Who put it forward? Here is the difference, and it's easy to miss this. Here's the difference. All right, this is incredible news. This is the best news you will hear all day. I promise you this. We don't have to truck our sacrifices to the altar in order to please God. In the problem of our sin and in the problem of our brokenness and the problem of us all being solved by the way that we have lived, we are not the ones expected to bring forward the solution. God himself has provided the solution. This was just mind-blowing to the people Paul was writing to because they had spent their lives trying to solve their own problems, And Paul said, no, no, no. God is the one that has chosen the sacrifice, and he himself has brought it forward. And Jesus himself has offered himself willingly on the cross, shedding his blood for your sin and for mine. This is groundbreaking news. In the image of the whiteboard, when we keep marking up the whiteboard, we don't don't have to keep erasing it. In fact, when we put our hope and trust in Jesus, because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, the whiteboard stays white. You're like, how can that be? Yes, we live in this tension where we decide to follow Jesus, but we still rebel and we still do things wrong. We have to ask for forgiveness. But in terms of our standing before God, how God views you and me, he views a clean whiteboard. Why? Not because of anything you and I have done. Not because of any sacrifice we've trucked to the altar and, and lifted up. But because of what Jesus did for you and for me on the cross. Whom God put forward. Friend, you and I are Saul's. We're living a life apart from God. And Paul says, Listen. There is no life apart from Jesus. Let me give you the answer. Jesus was put forward as a sacrifice for you and for me. And that's why Paul says there is no life apart from Jesus. You and I are Saul's. We've been living our life apart from God. Trying to do a work around God. Saying, God, this is mine. But God has already given us the answer. There is no life apart from Jesus. Now, there's a couple of um, questions I want to ask. The first one is, is is to those who would call themselves followers of Jesus. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. Um, you can listen in, but but you're off the hook for this one if you're not a follower of Jesus. Cool. For those who would call themselves a follower of Jesus, are you trying to live your life apart? Jesus? Here's what I mean by that. Like in the case of Saul, I'm not talking about, man, we make some mistakes, we slip up, and we sin, and we ask for forgiveness. We live in this tension of the already, not yet. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, do you come? Do you show up? Do you sing the songs? Do you go uh, to small group? Do you read your Bible? Maybe even give? Maybe even serve? But you're living your life apart from Jesus. You say, Jesus, you can't have this. Jesus, I know what you said about bitterness. I know what you said about unforgiveness. I know that you said that we've been forgiven so much. How can I not forgive the person who has hurt from me? You don't understand. God, if you were in my shoes, you'd understand. I'm going to keep this bitterness for myself. You can't have it. It's mine. Just like what Saul did throughout his entire life. It's mine. God, I... I hear you about this relationship, this relationship. Listen, I know what your word says, but listen, it's mine. I'm going to do what I want. It's mine. These financial resources, God, you know better than that. It's impolite to talk to somebody about their finances. (gasps) Those are mine. Whatever it is for you. Are you living your life apart from, I'm not talking again about, man, I I trip up sometimes and and, and I got a quick fuse or or I've been trying to kick this addiction. I'm talking about I am not submitting my life to God. I'm going to keep this aside. Jesus can't have this. It's too hard. It's too old-fashioned. It's too much. God, you just don't understand. This is mine. Are you living your life apart from Jesus? Now, if you tune out, if I told you you could tune out because you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I want you to tune back in. And as lovingly and clearly as I can say, the end of a life lived apart from God is death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Listen, I know that even as I say those words, there is so much baggage that comes along with these words. Maybe somebody's told you at a certain time that because you committed a particular sin, then God was done with you. And this language brings that up. Or maybe you, you were raised uh, in a family or in a home, in a religious tradition, and, and as years went on, you decided, man, that is not for me. I don't know if I believe this anymore. And you told your, your parents, you told a religious leader, whatever it might be, and you were shown the door with a couple of Bible verses or a couple of Scripture verses. I understand that there's baggage with this, and so if you would do me a favor, if you can, just kind of drop that baggage for a minute and just listen this question as clearly as you can. Is this true? Because friends, it's either true or it's not. It's not what works for you or works for you. or I think this kind of fits the way I feel. Either it's true or it's not. And if it is true that there is a God who waits for you with open arms. Brett earlier talked about how we are all sheep, and we're all a coin, but we're also the son, we're also the child that willingly left. Is it true? If it's true that Jesus is who he said he was, then it's true that there's a God who waits for you with open arms, who longs to have you home. If it's true, then Jesus deserves Your life. Stop living a life apart from God. And give your life to Jesus. And again, I know there's a lot of baggage that can come along with this language. And so if you want to talk with somebody a little bit more about that, we are we are here for you. But but as clearly and as lovingly as I can tell you, there is no life apart from Jesus. Now there's no one way to decide to to hand your life over to Jesus. But if you come here this morning and you realize, I've been living my life apart from God, maybe you've been playing the part, maybe you've thought, yeah, I'm okay because I sing the songs. Maybe you realize you've never handed your life over to Jesus. November 18th is a great day to hand your life over to Jesus. There's no one way to do that, but but, but a way to start might be a prayer. In a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to walk through that. But hear me greatly. Hear me clearly. Hear me lovingly say, God is waiting for you to come home. And that comes through relationship with Jesus because there is no life apart from Jesus. Would you pray with me? As you close your eyes and you bow your head, if that is you, if you realize, man, I've lived my life apart from Jesus. It's not just that I'm broken. I've, I've tried to do a workaround and and I've never given my life to Jesus, and that's what you want to do today. Again, there's, there's, there's no magic words, but, but you might pray a prayer that goes something like this. And so if that's you, pray with me. God, I recognize that I am a Saul. I recognize that I have lived my life apart from you, that I've tried to, 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 to push you out as far away from me as possible, that I am the son who ran away and disowned you. So God, I... I pray that you would help me come home to you and I give my life to Jesus. I don't know all the answers. I don't know what it would be like, but I trust that Jesus died on the cross to cover my sin, that I would be forgiven. So God, I trust in that gift. And I trust that it was given as a gift. There's nothing I can offer. It's just something I receive from you. And so God, I receive it willingly today. Tomorrow I'll mess up and tomorrow I'll stumble but I will follow you the rest of my life and trust only in you for my salvation. If that was you, with every eye closed and head bound, um, sometimes there's no magic way to to go forward, but sometimes it's putting a physical act uh, with, with a prayer like that can give us the courage to move forward in our walk with Jesus. So if that was you, would you please, with every eye closed, raise your hand. If that was you and you just... Decided to follow Jesus for the first time. And God, we thank you. We thank you for new life. God, we thank you that the only way to live life is by following Jesus that God, you have promised us because of what Jesus did for us and rose again from the dead that we would rise again and, and have eternal life in you, not because of anything we have done, because God, we have done so much to rebel against you, but when we stand before you, you see what Jesus has done on our behalf and God, we thank you for that and we trust in that alone. God, as we move forward, God, will you help us submit those areas of our life to you that, that we try to work around you? Would you please help us give us your grace to follow your son Jesus every step of the way. Maybe there's a place that we haven't quite handed over to you. You know, for those of us who have maybe have yet to put our hope and trust in you, God, I pray that you would work in our lives to show us the love of a father, the love of a savior who instead of condemning us, came to earth to die in our place. There's no better Savior we could ask for when we pray these things in his name. Let all the people say, amen.